The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I hope you're enjoying this long Memorial Day weekend. It does look like we're going to have a couple of days of reasonable, uh, seasonable weather for outdoor activities. But in between the Nordstrom half-yearly sale, the Bottle Rock Festival in Napa, Warriors' fantastic basketball, and backyard barbecues, take a moment to stop and reflect on what is the singular purpose of Memorial Day. It's to honor those who gave their last full measure of devotion, their very lives, in service to the flag of the United States of America and the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, with liberty and justice for all. Following the Civil War, Congress in 1868 set aside Monday, May 30th, as Decoration Day. That was a day Congress intended each and every individual community across the country would take some time to decorate the graves of their communities fallen, Civil War fallen, with flowers and to honor and remember their sacrifice. Decoration Day, as it was called, remained a state holiday until the passage of the Uniform Holiday Act in 1968 that created the many three-day weekend holidays that we have today. But it was not until 1971, during the Vietnam War, that Congress officially changed the holiday to Memorial Day in recognition of those who fell in the wars fought since the Civil War, from the Indian Wars of the 1880s to the 1898 war uh, that brought Teddy Roosevelt to prominence uh, and the Philippines into protection of the United States, through two world wars, Korea and, yes, Vietnam, and for the last 16 years, a war on terror. So if you have the opportunity, take a moment or two, or maybe an hour, to participate in the Memorial Day events scheduled in your community. Monday's a day to fly the American flag. As we know, my purpose on Sunday mornings is not to inflame you, it's to inform you to give you information that enables you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. 
We had expected today, as I said last week, that Tony Price, the executive director of the Gold Star Ride Foundation, would join us to tell us about the ride and about the Gold Star families that it supports. Unfortunately, when you're on a motorcycle 16 hours a day, um, six days a week, 13 hours a day, I'm sorry, um, making a 9 a.m. appointment a Pacific time um, became too problematic, and so we'll have to reschedule that interview. But what Tony's doing uh, does raise um, awareness uh, that the benefits um, that the United States government promises to its fallen soldiers are far short of providing uh, a solid foundation for that family going forward, unless, of course, um, you are actually 20-year military retired. And so uh, one of the questions I had hoped to ask Tony today, um, a question he said nobody else has ever asked him, is do we as a people, when people volunteer to serve, 1% of us serves, okay? 93% of the American population um, on the ground today has never served, But if that 1% that serves um, doesn't come home or comes home disabled, what is the level of obligation that we as a people have to that person uh, versus the the many charitable foundations that support um, wounded veterans and Gold Star families? Uh, and so I want you to think about that. I, I believe we have an obligation to make sure that uh, the wives of fallen soldiers and the children of fallen soldiers uh, can make their way in civilian society. Um, if that means a stipend to help the kids get an education, if it means a stipend to help a mom get um, more training so that she can support a family, then I think that is an obligation that we as taxpayers um, take on when we ask people to defend our right to not serve. But that's a personal opinion. <clears throat> and so, as you know, um, we're going to, if you have a comment, um, if you have an opinion on that subject, The call-in number is 888-367-5329. And with that thought left um, for you to think about, um, let's move on to what's in the numbers this week. Because the numbers tell us, as I remind you frequently, what's out of the norm, what needs attention, and what needs – what. What we have to triage immediately, and then what we have to plan strategically. So let's start with the number two. That's one teacher and one student wounded by a pistol in the hands of a seventh grader in an Indianapolis middle school this Friday, in the middle of a science test. Now, I know that I've had some tough moments, or I remember some tough moments with tests, Um, when I was in school, and science tests especially, but it never occurred to me that I ought to shoot the teacher. Last week, that number was 10. 
10 children and teachers who died in Santa Fe, Texas. And you know, the parents of the shooter, the person who killed 10 of his, uh, two of his teachers and eight of his fellow students, his parents say that he's a good boy. He's a sweet child. Well, had they ever looked at his Facebook postings? In both these instances, these two shootings in two weeks, none of the things that have been proposed to date would have prevented those, those shootings from taking place. Stronger background checks would not have happened, helped. A ban on assault weapons would not have helped. Um, it turns out you don't have to arm teachers with anything more than uh, passion, courage, and a basketball um, and good reflexes. Um, and, and, in, and, and so we need to look at this differently because in both instances, the kids who did the shooting got access to legally acquired and supposedly secured guns that were owned by their fathers. Now, for not one moment would anybody who listens to this show regularly think that I am not an enthusiastic supporter of strong background checks. And yeah, I think you should be 21 before you can own a gun. I'm not saying before you can hold a gun, but if you're under 21, you should be supervised by an adult. Because I think the fundamental of this problem begins in the home with parental responsibility. That's something we don't seem to talk about much when we talk about how can we find a panacea to fix this problem. You know, if your child is killed in one of these student shootings, it's a life sentence. You'll never completely recover. And if your child is the killer, it is equally a life sentence. But that doesn't mean that we should not hold parents additionally under the law, accountable in these situations. The common denominator in these school shootings is, with only one exception that I can think of off the top of my head, that they are committed by white male adolescents. So I'm going to ask a question as we start to think about going to break that I want you to think about if you're a parent. What are we as individual parents and what are we as a society doing wrong that produces this level of social alienation and violence in white male children? There are warning signs in all these instances, but we only see them in hindsight. How can we change that? It's easy. Well, it's not easy, but it's necessary to have the conversation. Parents need to listen, and they need to act when their children feel bullied in school or that they don't belong. That starts with talking to your children every day and understanding that this 
veneer of strong men, your sons are not less vulnerable or emotionally needy than your daughters. And we'll be back in just a minute to finish that thought and talk about some other numbers in the news this week. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with just a couple more thoughts on the subject of school shootings. I mean, these are becoming a weekly occurrence. Um, this is this is the equivalent of an epidemic. We need to fix this. And part of fixing it is how we treat our sons. They're not less vulnerable. They're not less emotional than our daughters in their teens. And you need to encourage them in just the same way that we've spent so much time and money over the last decade and a half, two decades, to encourage women to pursue careers in STEM, in non-traditional careers. Let me tell you, I have managed a lot of really big sales forces in my business career, and they were mainly made up of men. You know, we call it the last male bastion, uh, the last bastion of male supremacy, especially now the two of the three major stock exchanges in the United States are led by women. So when our sons are in their teens, we need to do three things. We need to make sure they're emotionally healthy, that they don't get bullied, and that they are not bullies. We need them to understand they and their sisters are equals. Okay, it's, this is not a competition. We love all our children equally. But we also need to make sure that our sons are not pressured into channels they don't belong in. Not every child needs to go immediately from high school to a four-year college. There are lots and lots of careers. Let me tell you, I'm desperate right now for a plumber. Anybody knows a plumber, let me know. Um, and you don't need a four-year college education to be a plumber, nor being a, is being a plumber mean that you're not a well-rounded and well-educated and well-read human being. So let's stop driving our kids down channels where their instincts and their habits and their, and their makeup don't fit. Let's, let's try to minimize the frustration by thinking outside the box about how they can have a middle-class future. And then parents invade your children's privacy. If they're on Facebook and they're on Snapchat and they're on Instagram, you need to be poking around what they're doing. Because in every one of these shootings, we have seen that Facebook was a warning, a warning sign. And if the parents had been checking, we'd have seen those warning signs and perhaps some of these deaths could have been avoided. And let's give the president applause where applause is warranted. He has asked the Centers for Disease Control to undertake a study of why we find this need to act out violently among adolescent males in the school situation, primarily white adolescent males. Now, 
studies have a way of taking too long um, and being too little considered when they're finished. But perhaps out of in the urgency of the moment of a weekly shooting in a school in America, the CDC can find some commonality, what we call in business the 80% common core in these instances. And we can find some ways to begin to change the paradigm in our schools to bring the safety from within the student body rather than talking about just talking about metal detectors. Although I'll tell you, I'm in favor of metal detectors in high schools given the current situation. And now let's turn our attention to another set of numbers that relate to the education of our children. And there are some interesting numbers. California's governors may revise. That's a final revision of the planned California state budget for 2018 and 2019. is in front of the legislature and the clock is ticking toward the need to pass that budget um, in the in the month of June. So there's some interesting numbers for us to ponder. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago we had a conversation about um, the fact that California is the fifth richest nation in the world, that by constitutional amendment it spends 49% of its tax revenues on K-12 through education. And, um, and we are like the – among the top 10, we're, we're about 7% higher than the average rate of taxation in the United States, and we have higher incomes. An average income in the United States, a family of four, is $55,000. California, it is $61,000. So with all those high tax numbers, why is it uh, that we rank, that we rank depending on who you want to ask, we rank somewhere between 22nd and 41st in per-pupil spending. So here are a couple numbers for you. New Jersey spends $26 billion on education, and that turns out to be $18,000 per student, rounded in New York, they spend $59 billion on education, and that works out to be about $21,000 per student. In California, we are about to spend $66 billion, and that'll work out to be merely $10,467 per student. How can that be, asks the average listener. Well, uh, it's pretty simple. It's the ratio of taxpayers to students. We are a state with a lot of children and not enough high-income earning taxpayers and not enough legislative focus on what we must do 
to ensure the future prosperity of California, and that is to educate our children so that they can have successful lives and continue to fund their children's education. Now, if you're an immigrant, this is a particularly serious issue to you. Because if we don't fix this problem, your children are not going to get the level of education that brought you to the United States. And they won't be as successful as you have been. So we're all in this together, and we'll be back in just a minute to talk about some of the details and some of the things we could do. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. So if I haven't already spoiled your Memorial Day weekend by telling you that we don't spend enough to educate our children, let me give you a couple more numbers that will make you even more either depressed or, in, in my case, incensed. One is that in order to catch up, in order to spend the $20,000 per student that we should be spending, not just to ensure uh, a, an adequate supply of good teachers uh, and to fund the craziness of educating um, kindergarten through third graders uh, in English immersion um, classes taught in um, a multitude of foreign languages uh, as of um, two years ago, uh, but just to catch up, to get the kids things that they really need, like smaller classes, a longer than minimum school year. You understand that children in the countries we compete in, against who are um, ranking 10 and 20 points ahead of us in math, uh, science, and even in some cases English, go to school between nine and 10 months a year, and our kids go to school barely six. So we need a longer school year. We need a 21st century educational program. And you know what? If you're the parent of school-age children, a 10-month school year, even a staggered so that you could take vacations when you wanted to, would think of what you would save in daycare and in summer camps and in other types of activities that don't always give you the enrichment that you want your children to have. So in order to get smaller classes, a longer school year, more elective subjects, more opportunities for kids to explore what they're good at, because kids who are enjoying and succeeding in one area in school stay in school and do better, and we know that statistically. And then we need to expand athletics and other extracurricular activities. And we need to give our kids in the classroom the latest in technology tools. Well, to do all that, and I know you're shaking your head, yes, yes, we should be doing that, okay? That would mean the state would have to double its current state spending on education. We would have to spend to get to that equip to, to get those laudable goals done, we'd have to spend a hundred and twelve or a hundred and fifteen billion dollars a year on education. And you're going, wow, where would we get that money? Well, let me ask you one more question. 
where are we going to get the $112 billion in unfunded teacher pension liabilities? Now, we've lied to ourselves, or not you and I, the legislature and the school districts and the school board members that you elected have lied to the teachers, they've lied to you, and they've lied to themselves when they've made these contracts that said, here, we're going to give you all of this for nothing because we can't pay for it under current funding schemes. So what to do? We've got, we have a, a ratio. We are a young state. You look at Hawaii um, and you look at Florida and they have abundant state funding for schools. And you know why? Because they're retirement-oriented states. So they have more tax-paying adults than they have young children. Now, in, tech, in Florida, that's changing. It's changing because of the Puerto Rican influx for, after the hurricane. It's changing for a number of reasons. Um, Texas, like California, um, and suffers from the opposite problem. We have lots and lots of children per adult. So we either need, and we have a very regressive tax system. In other words, our income tax system hits middle income taxpayers at almost the same percentage as billionaires. So you pay about 12% of your net. And that's a very regressive tax. Taxes on very expensive homes. You know, it is property tax that support schools in New York and New Jersey more than the income tax. But taxes uh, in California on property, I mean, if you own a $1.6 million three-bedroom fixer-upper and you're an average um, earner, let's let's even say you earn $180,000 a year. By the time you've paid your $3,000 a month mortgage and you've paid all your current taxes, how much more could you pay in property taxes or would you? So we need to step back and fundamentally rethink this. And no, no, we don't have a decade to figure it out. We have probably, if you believe Jamie Dimon, um, uh, we have, um, you know, from from Morgan Chase, we have about maybe two years until we begin to see an, the end of a normal economic cycle, which will mean a decrease in tax revenues under the existing system. So these are the questions that I want you to go and ask those folks who are running for school board and running for um, the state legislature And even people running for Congress, because maybe to solve some of these problems, we need to look at um, we we need different models. We need we need Congress to free us to have the various states be, as the commercial just said, laboratories of innovation and find new ways to support our schools. Now, I don't have all the answers, but it's a question We've got to ask, and it's a conversation which we've all got to have. And I'm Joyce Cordy, and you're listening to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. 
and let's take a take a a turn um toward uh, another subject that we talked about on Mother's Day that the state legislature is now looking at you know we talked about the unsheltered, I love euphemisms. Those are the people sleeping, the 114,000 people who are sleeping on the streets of California. And we talked about the inadequately sheltered. Those are people who are at the just position between living in a hovel and being homeless. And there are way too many of those people living in campers uh, along the El Camino Real uh, in Palo Alto and Menlo Park um, and Mountain View uh, because they work in Silicon Valley and they cannot afford a home here, all right? And we calculated based on the current assessment, the current um, uh, costs uh, to acquire land, uh, to get through all the multiple layers of uh, environmental review and planning and so forth, that it costs uh, $334,000 per unit, and we need 3.5 million units of affordable housing. So we're talking about in excess of a trillion dollars. Now, we are a state with a total budget of about a third of that. And out of that $330 billion or so, the governor wants to put $9 billion into a rainy day fund. And the legislature would like to use that $9 billion to, as they call it, fix the homeless problem. Well, you and I know the numbers don't add up. $9 billion is a drop in the bucket. It's, it's a um, placebo that they want to offer you, an aspirin. That's not even a placebo. It's a baby aspirin towards solving a monumental crisis for the humanity in this state. Don't let them do it to you. And we'll be back in just a moment to tell you about some of their foolhardy schemes. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back to talk a little bit about some of the schemes to paper over the unsheltered problem in California. It's one place where we're really bad laboratory. The governor's proposed in his budget, as I said, the budget, the governor has a plan that would put $9 billion of current year tax revenue in his rainy day fund. Because the governor, who is the most conservative politician in Sacramento, things could be worse if it weren't for Governor Brown. You need to remember that when you start thinking about who you're going to vote for uh, on June 5th and hold that thought. But the governor wants to spend $387 million, and the governor, to his credit, is doing triage with that $387 million because that is aimed at getting people out of the BART stations and into um, addiction and treatment and mental health facilities. You know, there was a time 
when California state hospital system um, very effectively um, housed and fed and humanely um, treated uh, mental illness and addiction issues um, within a residential setting. And then we said, oh, no, no, to solve this problem, we don't want people to feel stigmatized. Well, trust me, when you are sleeping on the con- on the, the marble floor of the BART terminal, um, I think you're pretty well stigmatized. So the governor's proposal is to spend $387 million this year in order to um, get some of these people off the streets and into treatment facilities. That's not really affordable housing. Um, It is housing for the addicted and the mentally ill, and I would support spending that money if we spend it to rehabilitate some of the existing facilities at places like Napa State Hospital or Tuscadero, et cetera, where we could um, put these people into healthy, safe environments, help them to get clean, and then help them to get uh, reestablished, which means skills training and mental health, et cetera. These are not short-term efforts. But if the governor wants to spend $387 million in order to provide that kind of housing in those existing state-owned properties, I think that would be a good use of money. Um, it would be humane, but it requires some additional legislation in order to uh, sometimes involuntarily get people the help they need. And also to clean up our streets. You and I, as people who use systems like the BART system, have a right to expect not to be stepping over uh, people and 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 other things um, in the BART um, station. But, <clears throat> you know, the members of our state legislature, these are such ambitious people. These are the reasons that we always have these bond issues on, um, on the ballot. But the members of the legislature have a number of bills to spend between $2 billion and $9 billion. Uh, that's the money that the governor wants to put away in his rainy day fund and his rainy – we know the rain is going to come. We're just not sure exactly when. So one of the things that's been suggested by a local politician – um, is to move the problem of affordable housing. Don't move it. Move it out of the BART terminal and build housing on top of the BART parking lots and pay for that with yet another bond issue. So if you've heard of uh, regional measure three, you can think that that's one of the uses they could put that money to. The problem being that the taxpayers of California are already the most bondedly indebted state in the nation. We are an experiment that is at some point in in the not-too-far-distant future going to test the full faith and credit of the United States because we have about $154 billion in bonds out there right now. Now, you understand that in order to build housing on top of BART parking lots, we would have to rebuild those parking lots. 
So do you know how many years it would take to get through the permitting process? Do you know how many cold winter nights people are going to be sleeping on the streets or in the in in an unheated um, RV uh, on El Camino while somebody figures out how to how to seismically seismically retrofit existing parking lots or rebuild them in order to build housing on top of them. And oh, by the way, for those of you who follow Elon Musk, you understand that BART as a system is a legacy technology. So how much do we want to depend on it as a uh, long-term um, commuter rail system until we get to something that's more modern, uh, more accessible, uh, and more convenient. Because we're not getting people out of their cars until we make it convenient. So, again, $9 billion for a trillion-dollar problem is a drop in the bucket. That means over a decade, we would solve one-tenth of the problem if we spent $9 billion a year. So the legislature needs to take the dishes on the table, throw them against the wall. We need to break some China and find a whole new solution to this problem, which is humane, which is immediate, and which is affordable. Now, I want you to go and ask those folks running for Board of Supervisors, for the state legislature, and yes, for the House of Representatives, how the heck they intend to fix this problem. And it has a lot of roots. And you notice one other thing about this housing crisis? None of the legislative suggestions even consider the question of why. Why do we have so many unsheltered, let's be frank, people sleeping on the street, 25% of the nation's total, sleeping on the streets in the fifth richest nation in the world. And you know what? Nobody in the state legislature wants to address the root causes of that. Now they just want to throw a few peanuts at it and then drive home in their taxpayer-supported Teslas. So, I'm Joyce Cordy, and you're listening to the Reimagine America Radio Hour, where I'm a little disheartened and a lot mad at a system of government that just doesn't work for you and me as citizens. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an independent. California state government does not work. If you can't educate our children, you can't fill the potholes. You can't think your way out of traffic gridlock. And you can't house the people you keep urging to come here, you have failed as a government. And beyond that, you've made promises. People have banked on those promises. If you're a teacher or a firefighter, etc., you've been promised enormous benefits. 
that we have no money to pay for. So, folks, it's time when we come back from break to talk about the ballot that's in front of you right now. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back to talk a little bit about the June ballot. Um, The Mercury News on Saturday, yesterday, published a story on the front page that says upwards of $40 million has been spent in the gubernatorial campaign in the last two weeks. You know, I keep wondering why we spend such millions and millions and millions of dollars on individuals' campaigns for, you know, for for positions where they're going to directly earn somewhere in the neighborhood of, if they serve a four-year term, um, $800,000. Well, it's about power, and it's about who you can drag along with that power. So if you want to look at where that money is coming from, it's coming from public employee unions, from the California Nurses Association. You want to know why healthcare is so expensive in California? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the people who fund the legislature and our elected officials uh, because every bit of that money has been going toward Democratic candidates. That should not surprise you in California. Um, John Cox, I believe, has about um, had about $2 million in um, PAC spending um, on his behalf. Um, but uh, there is quite a battle brewing uh, between um, the progressive wing of the party led of the Democratic Party um, and the more established um, or what we call the the National Democratic Party. And everybody's been tossing um, cash into the hopper in hopes that their candidate wins and shovels more of your tax dollars into their special interest. So take a step back from this ballot, from the, from the $20 million that came from outside political action campaigns not tied to candidates, And when you see a mailer in your mailbox, and if your mailbox is like mine and your recycling bin is like mine, you've seen a bunch. Um, And when you see commercials on television, look less at the big bold print of what they want you to hear as their what's in their message of nirvana to you. Take a look at who's funding it. Because how you interpret the words on the mailer is going to change dramatically when you realize who, in fact, is behind the money. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Uh, That's an individual decision. I don't 
take I, I listen to people who say things to me um, and um, and I don't say much back because I view the ballot as personal and private. But I'm disappointed in almost every case by the lack of achievement for you and me of the people running for office. What, you know, when you look at the ballot, there are probably six potential governors among the 26 people running. There are more than 20 candidates for the U.S. Senate, which pretty much ensures that Dianne Feinstein will earn another six-year term. But what you need to look at when you look at these candidates who have any chance at all of making the November runoff is what have they actually done? What have they achieved? Where have they actually governed successfully before they want to govern the most populous state in the nation? This governor, for the pygmies that are running, the governor of the state of California is probably the second most powerful elected official in the United States. So be careful about how you use your vote. And and as we've talked today, we have these enormous problems. They're financial, they're cultural, they're social. Have any of these people offered you a real, concrete, viable solutions that you can say, yeah, I get how that would happen. And I get how it would benefit me, my children, my grandchildren, and the generations to come. So I'm going to fill out that ballot today. I want you to look at the issues and examine the candidates. And then I want you to put partisanship aside. The purpose of the jump or jungle primary is to find two candidates who are closest to the center. When you look at California, red on the other side of the coastal mountains, blue on this side, we're looking for the most conservative candidate that can be elected in November. That should be your only litmus test in working your way through this ballot. The most uh, the person who is conservative by nature and electable in the state of California. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. Together, we can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>